Hi, and welcome to the Anxiety Savvy Podcast, where you'll find cutting-edge, science-informed tools for navigating anxiety. Whether you struggle with anxiety or have a loved one who does, this podcast is for you. I'm your host, Dr. Alyssa Jared, licensed clinical psychologist and clinical assistant professor at the University of Pennsylvania. An expert in the treatment of anxiety, I'm also an imperfect mom, wife, daughter, sister, and friend doing my best to show up and skillfully traverse the beautifully messy, emotion-strewn path that we call life. While I hope that this podcast helps you do the same, please note that the information shared here is not a substitute for therapy and is intended for educational purposes only. And now, without further ado, let's get started. Hi, everyone. This is episode five of the Anxiety Savvy podcast. And my plan for this episode initially, as I mentioned in the last episode, was to talk about social hangovers. I was going to talk about what those are and how anxiety Uh, can contribute to the experience of a social hangover, but I decided to shift gears a bit. So I'm going to postpone that episode for some time down the road uh, because today I want to circle back to PTSD. So in episodes two and three, I talked about what PTSD is and about a form of treatment for PTSD called prolonged exposure therapy. And today I'm going to kind of continue that conversation. So I'm going to be talking with Dr. Sheila Rausch and Carmen McLean, who are internationally renowned experts in PTSD and co-authors of the new book, Retraining the Brain, Applied Neuroscience and Exposure Therapy for PTSD. And my hope is that this conversation will be something that that you know all of you will find interesting though i should note that it might be geared somewhat more toward clinicians or those with ptsd but my my hope is that that even if if you don't have ptsd even if you're not a clinician treating ptsd that you still might get some useful information by by listening in So before we start, I want to introduce my guests. So Dr. Sheila Rausch is a professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Emory University School of Medicine and serves as Deputy Director of the Emory Healthcare Veterans Program and Director of Mental Health Research and Program Evaluation at the VA Atlanta Healthcare System. For over 20 years, Dr. Rausch has been conducting PTSD treatment research, providing PTSD treatment, training other providers in treating PTSD, and publishing extensively on PTSD and anxiety disorders. She co-authored the second edition of the Prolonged Exposure Therapy for PTSD Therapist Manual, as well as the manual for conducting prolonged exposure in intensive outpatient programs. She also co-authored the book PTSD, What Everyone Needs to Know, which is a scientifically supported yet accessible and reader-friendly resource for understanding PTSD and its treatment. And Dr. Carmen McLean is a clinical psychologist in the Dissemination and Training Division of the National Center for PTSD at the Palo Alto VA Healthcare System and a clinical associate professor at Stanford University. 
She is a certified prolonged exposure therapy provider and supervisor and has published over 100 scholarly articles and book chapters on topics related to PTSD and anxiety. Her research aims to increase the reach of exposure therapy for PTSD by examining implementation barriers and using technology and condensed delivery of exposure to address barriers to treatment access. In short, my guests are rock stars in the field of PTSD, and I'm so excited to chat with them today. So, Sheila and Carmen, welcome to the show. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Yeah. So happy to be here. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. It's really an honor to get to chat with both of you today. And I want to start by introducing our listeners to the book that you wrote together. So again, your book is called Retraining the Brain, Applied Neuroscience and Exposure Therapy for PTSD. And as the title suggests, it's, it focuses on applying findings from neuroscience to prolonged exposure therapy, which is a highly effective evidence-based treatment for PTSD that I talked about in great detail with Dr. Lori Zollner in episode three of this podcast. So for those of you listening, if you haven't listened to episode three yet, you can go back to that episode to learn a little bit more about the rationale for PE and what it entails. But Sheila and Carmen, I'm hoping that you can get us started today by talking a bit about what inspired you to write this book and what led you to focus on PE specifically. So I, I think I'll take that one because uh, this book really came out of, um, uh, I was contacted by a publisher <laughs> uh, after doing some, of, uh, after reading some papers that I put out about um, how prolonged exposure works and some of the research that I was working on. Um, I was approached by a publisher and she said, have you ever thought about writing a book for clinicians uh, focused on how they can use what people are learning in neuroscience in their practice. Mm -hmm. um, so that's really where this book came from. And when once she started me thinking about that, I got very excited about how um, there's so much of neuroscience that's applicable to our clinical practice mm -hmm. in many different ways. But most providers don't know about that. And it would take many courses to really... Uh, understand many of the papers that are out there. So um, that's really the brainchild of this book was trying to have a way to bridge that gap between um, provider therapy providers and neuroscience researchers so that uh, they can communicate between and so that uh, each part of that uh, partnership can kind of share in the, um, the expertise of the other. Yeah, so this book really was, uh, it was, you know, Sheila's idea, and I think it's so cool. I think there's, um, I think it's a great, um, there's a lot of need for, I think, trying to make some of that research, like, more accessible to, like, broader audience that could really utilize it in their practice. So, the cool idea, and um, really feel fortunate that Sheila invited me to um, contribute to it, um, and I'll, I'll, speak to the second part of your question about PE and why why PE specifically. So PE is um, it's a type of exposure therapy and it's a specific 
protocol, really. So uh, it's a specific type of, of exposure as a treatment manual. And um, it's really been studied the most of any PTSD treatment, um, full stop. So we know a lot about how well PE works with different uh, populations, um, with different in different format formats, and and um, and and even about the mechanisms. I would say we know the most about how exposure therapy and PE works relative to other treatments. So it kind of made sense from that standpoint to to use that treatment because we know so much about. Um, its efficacy and, and some about its mechanisms. Hmm. That makes sense. And I can say as a clinician providing PTSD treatment, I found this book really useful. I gained a lot from reading it. So thank you both for writing it and hopefully our listeners will, will pick it up and read it as well. Um, I, I want to note that in your book, you, uh, you, you said that turning a therapy session into a neuroscience course is unlikely to result in better outcomes. And I, I laughed as I read that because again, I, I was thinking about this podcast and how we could make this most useful for our people. Uh, you know, and, and I realized that if we turn this into a neuroscience course, it might not be the most interesting to everyone listening. Um, but I think you also noted that bringing neuroscience into the therapy room in moments of difficulty can be really powerful. It can help to move things forward. And so I'd love if you could elaborate on this a bit and discuss some of the findings from the field of neuroscience that might be especially useful to share with patients undergoing PE as well as our listeners. Yeah, I can, well, I'll just say broadly and then maybe Sheila, you can think of some good specific examples, but I think um, you, know, you don't want to make a session like a research as much as often um, therapists might get really kind of excited about the research and really like that and like think that everybody else cares about it as much as they do. Um, it's most likely not the case, although I'm sure there's, you know, variation, of course, in the in an in individual patient might be more or less kind of receptive to that type of information. But um, yeah, I do think at certain points, you could bring that in to really help explain and help the 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 patient to understand the, the rationale for why you're you're asking them to do something that is difficult. Because if if the patient really understands, yes, this is going to be challenging, but here's here I, I get why we're doing this. It's the reason for it, and I understand how this is going to be beneficial for me and my recovery. Then that's really powerful. So I think just in general, kind of bringing in research. Um, to, to facilitate that can be, can be powerful. Um, yeah. And then Sheila, I'm sure you have some specific examples of things. Yeah. Um, yeah. So most patients, when they're coming in for therapy, they just want to feel better. Um, and when we're working with them and they're having a harder time or they're not feeling better as quickly as maybe some other people or as, as they want to feel better, um, that's really when I think it can be useful for a provider to kind of help them understand why it may be slower than they expected. It's not an instantaneous change because, you know, you're new, there's new learning going on. There's this change that's happening in your brain. and It has to happen first before this other change can happen. So you have to have some kind of, uh, you have to feel the affect, for instance, 
you have to let yourself feel that affect before it's going to have a chance to reduce. So let's start with step one of getting you to connect with that memory again. And then step two is going to be, it gets easier. <laughs> um, and that's, that's kind of a simple place where neuroscience can come in. Um, I kind of think about it like uh, if someone has a cancer diagnosis, we want the doctor to tell us what's going to work and we just want it to work. But then if you hit obstacles and, and that treatment's not quite working the way it's supposed to, or you're having side effects, that's when really when you go back to the doctor and say, okay, what's going on now? Um, and that's typically the moment when people are more open for the more detailed information. At first, they just want it better. Um, and there's, uh, as far as stepping to the other piece of the question about what neuroscience uh, things have we learned that are most applicable to practice? Um, one of the pieces that's been really interesting and that's pretty well established at this point with um, exposure-based therapies is uh, we used to think you had to have uh, reduction in negative affect to get benefit from the treatments, these exposure-based treatments. But now we know that there's variability in people in how much they need that reduction in negative affect that in PE, we call it habituation, even though it may be more likely closer to extinction than habituation. Mm -hmm. um, for some people, they need that. But for many people, as long as they're approaching and staying with it and continuing to do the things that they need to do, even though they might be difficult, um, they're going to experience symptom benefits. Um, and that's kind of where some of the um, theories like uh, inhibitory learning and that sort of stuff, where it's more of a distress tolerance piece, in addition to that habituation and, and stuff that we know is also going on with many patients. Hmm. Can you speak to that a little bit more about, about inhibitory learning and how that has maybe shifted our approach to treating PTSD a little bit? Yeah, so it's um, that's actually a really important shift for providers to know that we still talk with our patients about habituation, uh, but we also can talk with them about how even if your anxiety is not going down and you're feeling um, strong negative affect over many repetitions, that's not necessarily a bad thing as long as you're staying with it. Part of what we want people to learn is distress tolerance. It's, it's being able to be present with affect and not necessarily have to react to it, not necessarily have to push it away or do anything in response, but that that affect itself is not dangerous um, and they can manage strong affect over time. Hmm. Yeah, and I find in my own practice that that's a really important message. In fact, I, I usually try to stress that over habituation because I think even after treatment ends at some point in time, people are gonna feel intense anxiety and I want them to know that they can still show up and do all the things that they need to do in their lives despite that anxiety. Right. It's also true that um, emotion is part of human experience. <laughs> it's part of life. And um, so we want people at the end of treatment to know that it's okay to feel really positive emotions and really negative emotions. And that's normal. And that doesn't mean your PTSD is coming back. It means that you're experiencing life and, you know, we all have ups and downs. Um, and so we can talk with them about that and also talk with them about what might be the things that they, uh, that would be signs that they do need to get booster sessions or that maybe they are slipping back into avoidant patterns 
and how they can address that. Hmm. Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, when there is a decrease in distress during an, an exposure session, that's great. And that's nice. And you can talk about what they take from that and, and everything. But um, I think that um, framing things more as as we're going to tolerate this and we're going to we're going to see what happens when you stay with it and what you learn from being able to just stay with it, regardless of what happens to your distress. <clears throat> in some ways, it kind of takes the pressure off a little bit. Um, and it allows you to really talk about important things that were learned from the session, regardless of, of what happens to that distress level. So I think that's it's a it's a nice thing to know about as a clinician from that perspective as well. Yeah. And so when you say take the pressure off, it means like it's still a successful experience, even if anxiety doesn't exactly. go down. Exactly. It's not all hinging yeah. on what happens to that distress level, which you can't really control. So it takes the pressure off on that. The, the session's not a, a, a bomb if they didn't show a decrease in their distress. Yeah. yeah. They're still learning. Yeah. And actually that brings us to this whole piece about tolerating negative affect, being able to sit with that anxiety. That brings us to something that you also mentioned in your book, which is that as PE therapists, we ask patients to learn under the worst conditions for learning to occur. That is while experiencing high anxiety. Um, and so I'm wondering if you can you can talk about kind of what you mean by this and why this isn't necessarily a bad thing. Why trying to learn when feeling really anxious isn't necessarily a bad thing. So I, th I think that that's more my words than necessarily Carmen's words. But uh, but yeah, the um, we know that it takes more repetition basically for someone who's highly anxious to learn the same content of information. Most of that research is actually based more on working memory kind of tasks, which isn't what we're doing. We're doing emotion learning, which is a little bit different. Um, but still, uh, that's part of why the PE protocol has so much repetition built in. Um, it's more about approaching, staying with it, feeling that affect, but then doing that again and again. It's not one time and, and you're done it's over and over. And that's why. Um, and that's also why it's built into the psychoeducation. You hear things once, twice, three times, you're listening to your tape, so you can hear it a couple of times. Um, that repetition can be helpful. It can also be helpful because you might hear it a little bit differently the second time than the first. So for some people, that's an opportunity to have a new interpretation or put their memory into a new context, um, which is a lot of what we're doing in imaginal exposure with our patients is um, taking the memory out of that trauma context um, and putting it into the context of understanding everything before, during and after that contributed to what you did, um, how you behaved, how other people behaved and how you feel about that memory now. Hmm. Yeah, the, the other thing, well, one thing I'll just add to that is, you know, um, it's important that the, the patient really feels all of the affect that is associated with that trauma memory. Um, so if you, were, if you could imagine doing exposure therapy where you had the exposure stop whenever they got at a certain level of distress, you can think about what would happen to that patient 
as they move on with their life after therapy and they inevitably encounter situations or, you know, things come up that trigger the memory of the trauma and they, they will experience that high level of distress, then they're not going to have any learning to fall back on about how to handle them. They won't have had that opportunity in therapy to learn I can experience this affect at its highest level and I'm okay and I can stay with it. And probably it'll decrease, but either way I can tolerate it. So you, you want to have those, you want to have that learning happen in a, in a safe, in a systematic way in therapy so that when they move on with their lives um, down the road, they have that learning um, to fall back on. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So it might take a little more time for this learning to occur when someone's feeling really anxious, right? We might need some more repetition as is built into PE. And at the same time, it's learning that I can be really anxious. I can tolerate that. I can stay with it. Um, that actually allows for many of these changes to occur. It allows for someone to be able to move on with their lives, even when feeling anxiety down the road. Um, that, that makes sense. So with that, Carmen, you spoke, you said it's really important that someone allows themselves to feel, the patient allows themselves to feel all of that affect when recounting the memory of their trauma, doing what we call imaginal exposure. Um, and so I'm wondering, you know, what are some strategies for promoting optimal engagement that therapists can use when doing imaginal exposure, even that patients can use, right? For someone who's listening, who's undergoing therapy right now and about to go into their therapist's office, close their eyes, tell the story of their trauma, what are some things that they can do to help them really feel their emotions in full? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I think part of it is the setup before you start and just making sure that uh, the patient really understands the, the instructions and the rationale for what you're asking them to do. Um, they need to really get the idea that the more I can lean into this, the better and understand that piece. That's really important. Um, and then, you know, while they're, while you're engaged in imaginal exposure, especially at the beginning, I think it's really normal to kind of, if patients sort of titrate that experience for them, for themselves, I think a little bit. So, um, you know, typically as a therapist, your your main task is you're trying to help them, um, you know, engage with the memory more. Um, you also don't want to bring them out of the memory. So if you're if you're going to ask a, a question to try to promote engagement, you want to be really brief, um, and you want to try to keep them in the memory rather than asking them like a complicated question that they're going to have to kind of stop and be like, wait, what did they say? And figure out their answer. So something really brief, things like, you know, what are you seeing? What are you hearing? What are you smelling? Things like that, that can help them um, get more in touch with the uh, sensory information and their thoughts and their feelings that they, they are having at the, at the time. Um, that the trauma occurred. That's sort of like the standard thing is just sort of those brief probes. Um, another thing that can be used is trying to incorporate some different cues. And I don't know, Sheila, if you've ever done this clinically. I, I, I haven't, but people can do that. They can bring in things that might elicit like a smell that reminds them of, of uh, the trauma. And I think 
olfactory cues are supposed to be like particularly um, powerful and they're connected to memory. So those can be really good. Um, but different things like that can also be helpful. Do you have, do you have examples? Yeah, or so I, I have a couple of uh, examples and typically you don't need these because for most people with PTSD, the memory is pretty close. And so they connect really easily. But when you have someone who's having a hard time approaching or who's really avoidant, sometimes you'll bring in these cues. Um, the two cases that stand out in my mind are, um, I worked with a Vietnam veteran who had um, been in a helicopter with some bodies and it smelled to him like ham. Um, and so that whenever someone would be cooking ham, he would have really strong triggers. Um, and so that when he was having a hard time connecting with the memory, we actually brought some ham into the session and smelled it. And he was right there like quickly. Um, the other example that probably is way more common is uh, if you put pennies in your hand, it smells like blood. And so that can be applicable for many, many patients with PTSD, that can be a powerful olfactory cue. The other thing, um, like auditory cues are sometimes used. So um, certain guns or things that may have been there at the time of the trauma um, can sometimes be helpful. And usually the way you'd use it is just right before the exposure, have them listen to it or smell. Um, and then as they're feeling activated by that as it's bringing them back to the memory, then you can do that exposure. Um, and they're already a little bit closer to the emotion. So the goal is always, uh, what Carmen said, the goal is always to get um, engaged with the affect of the memory of the trauma memory. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I actually, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this, but I've, I've actually used um, cologne, a perpetrator's cologne, um, a few times. And even in cases where I felt like that there was already activation there, the person was already really engaged with memory. Mm -hmm. And we brought it in down the road as a way to kind of like deepen that extinction learning. Um, because I knew that sometimes they would smell that out and about and the memory would pop up. And I wanted them to learn that they could tolerate both things simultaneously. I'm curious your thoughts about that. Um, so that's a good way to use it. I also would put it on an in vivo hierarchy quite regularly if we knew a specific smell um, for especially sexual assault survivors that I've worked with over time will often have a certain cologne smell or um, body odor smells. Those things would be great items for in vivo hierarchies. Um, and again, there the goal is you want them to be able to have that stimuli in, in their environment without having it trigger them quite as actively or robustly. All right. And so, so actually that brings us to in vivo hierarchies, um, right? And so that's, you know, PE consists of both imaginal exposure, which we've talked a little bit about, and in vivo exposure, which is really where people kind of get their lives back. They start doing the things that matter most to them. Um, and in your book, you note that uh, kind of success in, with in vivo exposure really hinges on constructing a really strong, effective hierarchy, right? That that, that construction process is really critical um, and, and is what allows for needed corrective learning to unfold. And so I'm curious if you can speak to that. What are some 
steps that we can take when constructing those hierarchies to make sure that they are going to be as effective as possible. Carmen, do you want to take that first? Um, sure. Well, you know, one thing that comes to mind, Alyssa, is just in how you were talking just now about in vivo hierarchies, um, which is the framing of them, because I think sometimes uh, there's a bit of a like a miss. There can be a misperception that it's just a list of things that make you feel anxious. It's just a list of things that are scary. And the framing of this is a list of the things that you want to be able to do um, when you've in your recovery, you know, once you've recovered, um, the things that are important for you too. I think that framing is really can be helpful to kind of just get on the same page with the, the patient and be really collaborative as you're building it. Um, it definitely, you know, you want it to be comprehensive um, would be the, my first thought. You want to think about things across a range of distress. Things are, are going to be easier, moderate, uh, things that are going to, you know, elicit high distress. You want to have a full range of things. Um, so you need to have a sufficient number of things. Um, and then the other thing you want to think about is for any individual in vivo exposure, you want to think about even within that, there can be like variations. Like you could go do this and you could do it with a friend or you could do it on your own or you could do it in the day or you could do it at night and you can you can manipulate all these different sort of contextual factors both to kind of create variation in the expected level of distress that it would elicit, but also just to create variation for variation's sake because there's variation in real life. And you want to incorporate that as much as possible so that, again, when therapy's over and they're, they're living their life and they're doing things and they have to go to the store at night when they don't usually, you know, they have that learning to fall back on because they've had an opportunity to practice this in, in a variety of contexts. Hmm. I, that's, I think, a really important piece because I, I agree that building the hierarchy and doing it so that... It, we're helping people do the things that they want to do. That's really important. But what you also mentioned is that we want to include that variation in part so that they can navigate whatever kind of life throws their way. And I think sometimes there's a need to like, um, even doing these exposures as a means to an end, like to know that maybe, maybe they don't want to go to the store by themselves moving forward, but if they had to, knowing that they could be able to do that, that they wouldn't be flooded with fear. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then just getting in uh, enough repetition, like it's not a one and done. Okay. I did that thing. Let's move up. You want to really make sure you're incorporating that repetition because we know that's critical for learning. That's helpful. Anything you want to add there, Sheila? I, I think you hit it really well. It's uh, getting the right items on there. That'll make a difference in their life and then making sure they're doing it enough and that they're generalizing it to other areas. So they, or they're thinking about what areas they wanna to continue to work on even when they're done. Um, so they get the general skill of how would I approach another situation in the future. Hmm. Okay. And I actually have a follow-up question for about both in vivo and imaginal exposure, which is like, how do you know that you're getting it right? that you're getting the right items on there, that you're getting optimal engagement, that somebody's really truly connecting and not avoiding in some way. Any thoughts there? 
Um, I would say the the biggest way that I know is that they're getting better. <laughs> you know, their symptoms are coming down. They're feeling more confident. They're feeling more connected to it. Um, if I'm not seeing that, um, and that could be reflected in their SUDS ratings when they're doing the imaginal, it could be reflected in PCL scores that they're, you know, giving me every week or so. Um, it could be reflected also in their function because you'll have some people who come in and maybe their PCL is not moving yet, but they're saying, oh, I went uh, with my son to a basketball game for the first time ever. And, you know, is that um, so as long as you're seeing those areas where they're making progress towards where they're um, showing additional function, you're probably in the right place. Um, the other thing about PE is that you actually have a lot of sessions and a pretty wide, uh, a pretty large amount of time to try different things. Um, so I always have my scientists hat on when I'm working with patients that, you know, we'll do an exposure and then we'll look at what they learned as Carmen had said, that what they learned from that, we'll also look at um, how they're doing that, that next day or that next week. And that'll help us know where to take that next step. And we're always trying to do it better that next time, you know, where's, where's the little bit of affect that's left in your imaginal that we want to make sure we squeeze out in this next session. Where's that other in vivo item that maybe we didn't think of it initially, but that would make a big difference in your life and adding that on. So it's really in collaboration with the patient that we know if it's working or not, or, and there's a thousand ways to do this. There's not just one right way. <laughs> Um, typically, you know, as long as you're making progress and the patient's feeling empowered and a part of that discussion, it's probably going to be working. Okay. And I'm guessing with that too, right? Uh, like you said, getting that collaboration, getting that feedback from the, the patient as well, that probably also requires, again, that buy-in that we were talking about earlier, right? That the person really gets why they're doing this and is trying to embrace the spirit of their treatment in their life. So if they're going to the basketball game, they're going and they're not just scanning the whole time that they're there, but they're actually going and allowing themselves to just sit and watch the game. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and in your book, you cover a number of promising approaches to augmenting PE. I'm curious if you can talk about uh, what, in your opinions, are some of the most exciting avenues to augmentation. Well, I'd be curious to know what, what Sheila thinks because she knows much more about this than I do. But um, I, uh, I, I like the idea of using like pharmaceuticals or or other kind of techniques that in a way that is like consistent with our theories about how change happens in therapy. Like I just conceptually think that's cool to think about, okay, we know that there's this extinction process happening. How can we like superpower that and 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 help learning happen, you know, faster or or um you know help minimize non-responders and things like that. I like that idea. I don't, yeah, again, I'd be curious what Sheila thinks because I, I, you know, initially there was, you know, decycloserin was sort of like the promising um, pharmacological agent that was supposed to augment learning. And it's, I think now a little bit more mixed or a little less enthusiasm about that, but there's so many other things that people have 
um, been looking into. And there's, you know, maybe some like preliminary evidence for some of them, but I'm not, I'm not really sure what's going to come of all of that. Um, and then the other thing I like is that I, I like the, I, the idea of using um, behavioral uh, approaches because that's something that uh, like, uh, you know, uh, the average um, mental health professional could incorporate really easily. So I like from just from that um, uh, ease of implementation standpoint, I really like the idea of behavioral augmentation strategies. Um, so one of those is uh, using exercise. And I guess the idea is that when you exercise, this creates this, this uh, promotes the release of this hormone brain derived neurotropic factor. I think I'm getting that right. Yep. That, that, that has uh, been um, implicated in, in learning. And so the idea is you have more of that floating around, your learning is gonna be more robust. So there has been a few studies, I think a few small studies on this now, but one that was most promising, I think had people exercise right before they did imaginal exposure. And they did find that that um, led to kind of better outcomes than the group that didn't exercise before. So that's a really cool kind of approach, um, promising, potentially promising approach. Yeah, and uh, um, I would echo what Carmen said. The biggest, um, so as someone who's done a lot of implementation work in PE over the years, um, the augmentation strategies I'm most excited about are ones that don't require another provider or a new intervention that would require additional training. Like the more that we can give things, put things in the hands of the people who are already trained in PE, to augment it, the better off we are as a field, because um, it's hard enough to get people trained in BE. Um, so anyway, so exercise is actually one of the augmentation strategies I'm most excited about, and it's partially because it works with the mechanisms that we know are going on in the brain. Um, that release of BDNF is quite powerful, um, and it has been shown to make the learning more efficient, so they get change more quickly. Um, and they, um, in the power study, they actually showed that uh, there was more change in the group that got the exercise than the, the other group. Um, with a lot of these augmentation strategies, and this is part of what happened with DCS, um, with decycloserine, is uh, it's not just you give the pill or you don't. It's when you give the pill, the dose of the pill, uh, what was the learning in the session that the person had? All of those things are relevant. So if you have a session where there wasn't a lot of that habituation change, um, there's some research suggesting that you pro it probably isn't worth it to do the decycloserine after. But if you have big change, then it may be more effective to do the decycloserine after. Most of those studies actually dosed people with decycloserine before the, the exposure session. And that's part of why they're thinking maybe that wasn't the right way to do it. We need uh, we needed to do it later so that there was um, more on board, more of the changes going on in the brain at the time that the person was in the exposure session. Um, so that's something that we're learning a lot about uh, is that it's not just uh, give a pill and see how it impacts pill compared to placebo. We have to know the timing. We have to be really thinking about what mechanism are we um, augmenting here? What mechanism that we think is happening in PE are we augmenting? And then building the 
way that we're augmenting to that specific mechanism. But there's lots of really um, promising research. Um, I actually have a study that's looking at THC, augmenting um, synthetic THC to PE. Um, there's studies looking at MDMA augmentation to PE or to other therapy. Um, and all of these, I think, are really promising. I'm more excited about the ones that we can do with less additional providers, less interventions, less things added. So things like TMS and uh, TDCS, there's a home-based um, transcranial direct uh, current study looking at augmenting PE with that. And it's a little device that people can take home and do at home. They don't have to come in every day like they do with uh, TMS. So anyway, that was a, a, a little all over the place, but there's lots of good research going on um, and uh, potential augmentation strategies to really help people who are slower responders or non-responders actually become responders. Huh. Well, I actually, I, I was hoping you could speak to some of your work and you mentioned that study that you're doing with THC. And I'm curious because I think in my practice, I see a lot of people with PTSD who do use THC marijuana. And I'm wondering what, if any, considerations just providers should have in mind when working with someone doing exposure, because THC can influence the anxiety that someone's experiencing, right? Yeah. Just during an exposure or after or before an exposure. So I'm wondering what are some thoughts there? Yeah, so there's lots of thoughts there. First of all, um, our patients that are smoking marijuana, it's totally different than what we're talking about in the in the research study because uh, that's, first of all, it's chronic. It's marijuana that includes something like 10,000 different chemicals in different amounts that we don't know really what they're getting when and how it's absorbed. So um, first of all, we know chronic marijuana smoking actually uh, from a large study done in the VA, it actually interferes with um, treatment response, both SSRIs and uh, therapy overall, when we look at large samples of people who are chronically smoking. So that suggests overall, it's not great. Mm -hmm. But um, in acute dosing, uh, right before a session, uh, we've actually, actually, Christine Rabinak at Wayne State is the person who's led these studies, but she's actually been able to show that um, THC compared to placebo was related to better extinction retention in humans um, in her study. So that's why we're actually looking at it now as an augmentation strategy for PE because extinction retention is part of what we're wanting to enhance um, so that patients will um, take what they learn in their sessions um, out into the world and into their life um, and actually remember that they're safe and that the trauma was in the past and they're okay now. Um, you know, all of those things that's basically built on extinction retention learning. Ah, so it sounds like there's a big difference between chronic marijuana use, uh, which can really interfere with PTSD treatment outcomes, and the strategic use of THC right before a PE session, which has the potential to really enhance PE outcomes, which is pretty exciting. And you both are doing a ton of exciting work. And I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about some of your other ongoing or recent projects. Carmen, you want to go first? Sure. Yeah, so I um, my work broadly, you know, tries to look at how we can get effective treatment like PE 
make it available to more people because, you know, right now we kind of have um, the model of, you know, an individual once weekly therapy, usually in like a specialty care clinic setting. Um, it's not, it's not widely available to, to the most people. So there's so many people that could benefit from this effective uh, treatment that, that just don't have access to it. So um, some of the work I'm doing is looking at how we can use technology to um, to provide effective treatment strategies to people like through um, web programs. Um, I tested a version of PE that was delivered um, online and sort of self-guided sessions with a therapist kind of facilitating things on the back end, uh, which was which was quite promising. We had quite promising results for that. And um, I've also developed um, a mobile app that incorporates exposure therapy that is for people, you know, these are not, something like this is not, of course, a, a replacement for, for traditional psychotherapy, but um, could be really beneficial to a lot of people um, who maybe don't have access to treatment or don't need that high of a level of care. Um, so we've just kind of wrapped up a trial testing that app that includes exposure for, for post-traumatic stress. Um, and then I have another study that's also, it's not a PE, but it's another exposure um, a protocol called written exposure therapy and testing a um, version of that delivered online uh, with peer coaches kind of facilitating the program. Um, yeah, and then I also have a, a study I'm doing with the military to try to help military behavioral health clinics use um, PE more often with their PTSD patients. Um, even when providers are trained in the treatment, there's, you know, in real world clinics with the patient, you know, the providers are really busy and they have tons of patients and there's competing, you know, priorities and things like that. It's often difficult to kind of implement the treatment as often as they would like. And so we're working with the clinics to try to make some um, kind of process improvement changes to make it easier for them to use it more frequently as clinically appropriate. Hmm. Very exciting. So broadening the reach then. Of, uh, broadening the reach, yeah, yeah. Great, and how about for you, Sheila? Yeah, so um, I can extend that theme a little bit more because um, about half of my research is focused on expanding the reach, um, looking into primary care, um, both in the VA and outside of the VA. Um, there's a brief version of prolonged exposure that's provided by embedded mental health providers in primary care settings. Uh, and the idea there is that most people with PTSD will never actually make it to specialty mental health. So being able to provide a quickly accessible treatment as soon as they screen positive for PTSD uh, right in primary care, that's not medication, um, that we can really provide access to a lot more people. So that um, I'm, I have several studies and a demonstration project in the VA that are looking at that. Um, in addition, kind of flipping it to the opposite side, but still with the idea of better access, um, intensive outpatient treatment programs are another way to go where you have special specialized providers um, and people can come from all over the country to get um, a two week um, 
I don't know how to describe it, a really intensive two weeks full of treatment where they get basically a year's worth of care all in two weeks to address their PTSD. Um, and we have that at the Emory Healthcare Veterans Program. And I've also been working with um, some people in the VA who are setting up similar IOP models in the VA. Um, and that's also encouraging because it's getting people access. They can just say, you know, I know I want this treatment and they go there and, and get it and don't have as many barriers to that, to receiving that care. Um, and then the other part of my research is really looking at mechanisms of, of change and what happens in PTSD for people to get it and as well as for good treatment. Um, and so there I've really been looking at different biomarkers, uh, prognostic biomarkers. So who's going to respond more slowly or quickly to uh, prolonged exposure or to SSRIs. And then I have had a couple of studies looking at that. Um, some really interesting results looking at the influence of pain. So we have found that baseline pain, higher levels of baseline pain are related to slower um, and less magnitude of response in PE. Um, so we're looking into biologically what might be going on there because there's a lot Pain and PTSD are um, kind of like brother and sister. <laughs> um, they often co-occur, they develop together. Uh, we have genetic research from uh, ERs that's showing that they develop together. Um, we have this research that's now showing it's related to response uh, to less responsive PTSD. Um, we know that aloe, which is a natural hormone that is related to pain management, um, people with higher aloe actually do better in PE than people with less of that. So that's another piece of the picture that's a little puzzling, but that we're trying to, to line up all those, um, all those cards. So looking at different mechanisms. Um, in addition, there's, I'm really excited about um, neuromodulation and being able to add neuromodulation, whether it's TDCS or TMS um, to PE. Um, more specifically, and actually look at whether we can change people who are slower responders into um, faster responders to exposure therapy. Hmm. Well, both of you are doing some very exciting work. Uh, can where can where can listeners go to connect with you to follow your work? Maybe to purchase your book. Um, so our book is available um, at uh, APA Press. It's also available on Amazon. Um, and so I would love for you to check it out and let us know what you think. Um, in addition, I'm at Emory, um, Emory Healthcare Veterans Program and the Atlanta VA, where I'm the Director of Research and Program Evaluation for Mental Health. Um, Carmen, did you want to add? Yeah, I'll, I will add just about our book that... Um, through the APA site, you can um, download one of the chapters for free. Um, so if you want to just get a little taste of it and see what it's, what the book is like, you can, you can do that. Um, yeah, I am, I am on Twitter. I've, I do share my work on Twitter um, pretty often. So people could follow me there. Carmen McLean, PhD is my, is my handle. And I'm on Twitter too, but I'm not very good at Twitter. <laughs> I'm with you, Sheila. I'm working on it. Um, all right. Well, that is really helpful. And I, I guess to wrap up, I'm wondering, um, what's one thing you wish more people knew about PTSD and prolonged exposure therapy? 
I can go. Um, the main thing I wish more people understood about exposure therapy is that it is very safe and effective. And there's really a misconception that exposure therapy is dangerous, that it's re-traumatizing, that patients can't handle that, handle it. And it's just not what the research uh, supports. And it's not, I mean, my clinical experience, I'm sure Sheila's clinical experience is that's really patients are, if they understand the rationale for the treatment and they're there and they're ready to, to, to make changes, they are willing to do the work. They are able to do the work and it's, it can be really, really powerful and really, really effective. So I, I wish more people just um, understood that. I agree. I, I would say the thing I wish more people knew is that you don't have to suffer with PTSD. Um, you, can, you don't have to be haunted by these memories. You can take your life back and we have good treatments that work. You have CPT, you have PE, you have uh, choices of treatments that can work to address your PTSD. That's really helpful uh, and very encouraging. Thank you both so much. I really appreciate your time and all of your wonderful insights. Thank you. Thanks, Alyssa. Yeah. Appreciate the chance to chat with you. Thank you for listening to the Anxiety Savvy Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a five-star review and share it with your friends and family. As a reminder, this podcast is for educational purposes only and is not a substitute for therapy. If you are having a mental health emergency, dial 911 or go to your nearest emergency department. And if you are looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources section of my website, alyssajared.com.